I mean, we've heard these things before, right? Like maybe homeschooling can fix human nature. Maybe homeschooling can create kids who turn out exactly the way we want them to. That sells a lot of tickets to homeschool conferences, right? Maybe the answer lies in reading the right kinds of really old books or wearing the right kinds of clothes or listening to only a certain kind of music and using just this curriculum, this will produce Christians. Well, spoiler alert, right? I mean, Amy, you and I have talked about this so many times before. There is no substitute for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Welcome to Homeschool Conversations with Humility and Doxology, a series of interviews with real-life homeschool moms, dads, and other educators on all sorts of topics that affect our lives as homeschool parents. I'm Amy Sloan, a second-generation homeschool mom of five, and I am so delighted that you are here. Here on Homeschool Conversations, we'll discuss educational philosophy, family life, and more. Come chat with us. Hello, everyone. Today, I am delighted to be here with Gina Muncy, who is a Mexico-born, Eastern Europe-raised missionary kid and second-generation homeschooler. A child of homeschool pioneers, Gina began her own education in the former Yugoslavia behind the Iron Curtain. She currently lives just outside Nashville, Tennessee with her artist husband and two kids and writes about gifted education, homeschool subculture, theology, and books at OaxacaBorn.com as well as on Instagram at OaxacaBorn. And if you aren't sure how to spell that, that is O-A-X-A-C-A-B-O-R-N. And I will have links to those things in the show notes. But I'm really excited to have Gina here. I've been pestering her to be on the podcast for a while. So I'm excited (laughs) that you finally succumbed. This is true. (laughs) Gina, here at the beginning, can you just tell us a little bit about your own experience being homeschooled and then how that played into deciding to homeschool your own child? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Thank you so much for having me on the show, Amy. I know that you continued to ask and I finally said yes. So (laughs) (laughs) I was homeschooled um, preschool through high school all the way through. Um, My parents, though, had an unusual reason to begin to homeschool. Unlike a lot of homeschool pioneers, Amy, I don't know how your parents started homeschooling you, but for my parents, it wasn't a result of, you know, going to a church conference or getting swept up in the counterculture movement. Um, If you've ever read Eugene Yelchin's book, Breaking Stalin's Nose, you know about the young pioneers. Mm -hmm. So those school children all lined up in uniform with their obligatory red scarf all learning to be good communists. Well, when it came time for my parents to start thinking about the education of us kids, we were living in the former Yugoslavia. And my parents walked past the schoolyard one day, the school that we were zoned for that my brother and I would have gone to, and they saw Tito's young pioneers, red scarves and all, all lined up in the schoolyard. And they said, no, that's not happening. Yeah. Um, They didn't know anything about homeschooling. They didn't even know if it was legal at the time. Um, but they knew they weren't going to send their kids to be indoctrinated into the young pioneers. Um, and in, in a way, I think this is a somewhat parallel to the postmodern culture we find ourselves in in America. But in a, in a socialist republic, these things were not disguised, right? These things were just right out in the open. So 
in the former Yugoslavia at seven years old, every school child was initiated into the Young Pioneers. They were taught a military salute. They were given a scarf. I remember in Breaking Stalin's Nose, um, he's taught to recite the pledge. Yes. I will be a loyal and honest comrade and I will spread the principles Tito taught. Now, Tito was the leader of Yugoslavia from after World War II all the way up until his death in 1980. So this is not ancient history. This is recent. And, you know, I grew up with Tito's photo hanging up over the doorways in the stores and the shops um, and in people's homes. So that's how I started my own homeschool journey. We were in the former Yugoslavia behind the Iron Curtain. There was no internet, no library to speak of, no printer, no homeschool group, no co-op. And some people will think this is sacrilege, but it was behind the Iron Curtain, not even a church. And my mom would homeschool my brother and I while my dad and a colleague would periodically leave on trips to smuggle Bibles behind the Iron Curtain into Romania and Russia. Um, so that's not your typical how I discovered homeschooling story. Um, but then later on, when war broke out in the Balkans, when the USSR dissolved and all of these countries started declaring independence, it started to get really dangerous. Military helicopters and soldiers. And um, we were warned by the embassy that we should probably leave the country for a while. So we packed a few suitcases and headed to Michigan for what we thought was a furlough. And as soon as we left, tanks rolled in and the airspace closed and nobody was flying back in anymore. And this was right before the bombing of Sarajevo. So we were never able to go back home. And we started over in the US with just those suitcases. Wow. So America for me, it hasn't always felt like home. And America is the place I went when I was displaced, hmm. right? So having this experience, I feel often so much outside of the American homeschool experience. Um, we lived in the Midwest when we first came to the States. It was clear that there was no going back to our home. The borders were closed, the war continued. Um, and the whole landscape in Eastern Europe changed. The borders changed, countries' names changed, right? The whole, everything changed and, and we, we were never able to go back. So I was homeschooled in the Midwest for quite some time. You know, my dad got a good job and, um, my brothers and I were raised in the Midwest. And then when I was a teenager, we moved to California. <laughs> so, I mean, that's just a world apart, right? Yeah, it was like um, another country. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I've already had this shift from Eastern Europe to the Midwest. And then when I'm 16, we pack up and we move to California. So um, my husband is from California. He was also homeschooled preschool through 12th grade. But what you have to know about Northern California is that it's home to a lot of homeschoolers, but also a lot of fringe movements. Hmm. And a lot of those fringe movements, I would describe as an inch away from a cult. Um, and some people have said to me, you know, Gina, don't you think that's a bit much? Like, those are harsh words. And I say, well, when you leave a church and the leader, who has a big name in homeschool called subculture, and you leave a church and the, and the pastor calls your home, and says to your mom, Gina and her brothers cannot leave this church, then yes, I can say that we had brushes with cult experiences. So this is my years living in California, I really saw the gritty underbelly 
of the homeschool subculture. And what I experienced in those years is what keeps me bold in speaking out against legalism, uh, speaking out in ways that, you know, some people find obnoxious, quite honestly, um, but it's absolutely essential. So I, I think I, I'll talk more about what I experienced there a little later in our conversation, but you might ask, like, with that background and with the things I saw in Northern California, why in the world did I decide to homeschool? Yes, exactly. Right? How did you go from, okay, this is about like, we're behind the iron curtain to now I'm with crazy people <laughs> to, I think I'm going to do this with my own kids. So the truth is I wasn't going to, right? Yeah. Like, I'm like, I'm, I'm done. I don't, I don't need to be around homeschool subculture anymore. I need a break. Um, we're going to be normal. Well, those are famous last words, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? I'm going to put my daughter in school and I'm just going to go to a coffee shop and I'm going to write a book. Well, you know, I don't have a book um, uh -huh. and I don't have a school drop off line either. Um, so when, when I found myself with a daughter who, when she was three and a half, she asked for a math book, right? And then um, when she was four and a half, she told my husband and I, I'm going to read you a bedtime story. And we said, that's wonderful. Thank you. And she got a microscope encyclopedia and started reading the appendix, mm -hmm. like how to prepare a slide. And at that point, I, I shouldn't say I was no longer in denial that a traditional brick and mortar school wasn't going to work, but I still was in denial. <laughs> and so I toured the local Christian school and I was going to put her in pre-K and I, we went on this tour and my daughter's asking questions, you know, and she's the extrovert and I'm the introvert. So she basically took me on this tour and took the teachers on the tour of the school. And they all basically laughed at me, which at the time I thought was incredibly rude. Um, but looking back, it was comedic. It was very funny. And at the end of the tour, they told me, um, we can't do anything for your daughter. So the, the truth is she wouldn't have fit in there anyway. And looking back, I wouldn't have wanted to force her to. Um, so we decided we're going to homeschool just for a year, which again, famous last words, right? Right. So my daughter's wired differently. We've talked about this, Amy, in our Instagram DMs and stuff. She's, she's neurodiverse, to use clinical terms. So she's curious, intense. She's working a couple of grade levels ahead of some same age peers. You know, it's not just a grade level thing. It's not it's not just you can do the next math book. She sees life completely differently. Um, and right now as a rising fifth grader, she would have a difficult time sitting in a classroom without getting distracted by classmates fuzzy sweaters and textures in the carpet and the flickering lights. You know, so she's at lunch, she reads appliance owner's manuals. Like this is just not when I said we were going to be normal. That was not <laughs> in the cards for us, right? Yeah. So homeschooling makes so much sense. And at this point, I really see it as the only option. Um, it allows me to offer accommodations all day long, right? No IEP, no 504, no parent-teacher conference. Whatever accommodation our homeschool kids need, we can offer it immediately. You know, and I know you have experience with this as well, Amy, just customizing and tailoring and personalizing education to exactly what our kids need. I mean, the beauty of that is just unparalleled. Oh, I agree a hundred percent. And as you're describing stories with your own daughter, when she was three and four, I just, ah, uh, it's bringing back 
not, you know, some even hard memories from when some of my children were that same age. And we'll talk a little later about um, that experience about having these awesome quirky kids and all of the wonder and challenge that comes with that. Um, I, I want to go like a million different directions right now because that was <laughs> such, such a fascinating story and so different from, from many people's experience, even in the second generation homeschool world. But I want to dive a little bit into your experience as a second generation homeschooler, now kind of being almost an, an unexpected homeschooler yourself in a sense. How does your experience play into how you choose to homeschool your own children? Well, I mean, for one, it gives me a healthy dose of skepticism whenever anyone in homeschool landia claims to have found the formula for anything. Oh, yes. <laughs> right? Uh-huh. As soon as someone's like, this is the only right way to do things, I'm like, uh-uh, no, no. So, I mean, we've heard these things before, right? Like maybe homeschooling can fix human nature. Like maybe homeschooling can create kids who turn out exactly the way we want them to. That sells a lot of tickets to homeschool conferences, right? Maybe the answer lies in reading the right kinds of really old books or wearing the right kinds of clothes or listening to only a certain kind of music and using just this curriculum. This will produce Christians. Well, spoiler alert, right? I mean, Amy, you and I have talked about this so many times before. There is no substitute for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Yeah. Homeschooling is is not a venting machine that you just push the right buttons and get out the product. Exactly. Exactly. And there's no way to get a guaranteed outcome. Like this is the sobering, terrifying reality of parenting. We can't just character train and virtue train our kids to heaven. You know, morality culture that is sold so heavily in homeschool subculture, it doesn't save the soul. So being a second generation homeschooler, I see all these claims with a healthy dose of skepticism. And I really have to fight hard not to buy into morality culture or fear-based culture. Um, I do believe we're living in a postmodern society. I believe the world is very wicked and there is, you know, the devil is prowling all around like a lion seeking to devour homeschooling out of fear or out of the promise that you'll be able to control your kids, that's not the right way. And I tell my friends who are new homeschoolers, I say, look, I've been this guinea pig already. This is not the path to Jesus. Only the blood of Jesus can save. Yeah, I think that's so important because um, as soon as we start putting our hope in a system or in a certain way we're educating or the, you know, the latest Christian homeschool guru that promises that if we just do things their way, you know, our families will be happy and our children will never sin and we'll be perfectly safe <laughs> right. and happy. Um, as soon as we put our hope in those places, we're going to be disappointed. It's, it's just idolatry dressed up in a different set of clothing. And, um, you know, we have seen, Gina, we've seen that that fails, that so often it turns out that these are wolves disguised and, um, it it doesn't end up working. Um, you know, we, we, we so want and long for our children to love Jesus and that's a good desire when that, right. So, but when that desire becomes, um, becomes the idol that we seek it in our own strength, instead of relying on the gospel and the power of the spirit and regeneration, then we are going to be doomed to disappointment. And ultimately that doesn't give hope to our children either. 
It doesn't. And I, you hit the nail on the head when you said these things become an idol because, you know, it's easy to, I think it's easy to identify that homeschooling can become an idol. It's maybe less easy to identify that family can become an idol. Mm. And it's a little bit harder, but still true that the desire for our children to walk with the Lord, that in itself can become an idol because we end up taking our eyes off Christ and we put our eyes on methods of how to get there. Well, the truth is none of us even know how we got to where we are, right? It's by the grace of God that we are even homeschooling, that we're even taking this breath, that we're able to speak any of these things. So as soon as we take our eyes off Christ and we put our eyes on methods, it's bound to fail. It's bound to fail. You know, and it doesn't end up with our kids doing their chores and growing up to be pastors. You know, there's a very dark end to a lot of these methods that you and I have seen um, as we were the guinea pig generation. Yeah. And it is certainly my prayer. I tell my kids all the time. I'm like, I know that I'm, you know, screwing things up in my own way. (laughs) So exactly. I am sorry. (laughs) I have to repent to you of all the things I've done wrong as a parent. Your hope does not lie in me being a good mom, but in the grace of God. (laughs) Yes. And there'll be another round of these too, with like third generation homeschoolers discussing what we did. Exactly. (laughs) I am under no illusion or delusion that I have figured it out for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Gina, I want to ask about your experience as being this third culture kid. So you were born in Mexico, you're raised in Eastern Europe, then you moved to the Midwest and then California. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. at least four, if not more. And seven years in Florida in there too. Oh my goodness. Okay. So (laughs) you have this experience sort of always being a bit outside of the culture. Mm -hmm. And how do you think that impacts your goals as a parent or the way you homeschool? That's a great question because there's no way for it not to affect absolutely everything. Uh, When you're a third culture kid, and maybe some listeners aren't familiar with that term, so I'll define it quickly. A third culture kid is someone who was raised in a country which is not their passport country, right? So they're born in one country, raised in another. And as an adult, third culture kids may never feel at home in their passport culture, which makes sense, right? Because they weren't raised there entirely, but they're still considered an outsider in the culture in which they were raised. So they're a product of, of a third culture. And we third culture kids, we really hold conflicting ideas about the concept of home. Um, This affects the way I teach history, obviously, and it even affects theology. And and I'll explain because that sounds a little bit heretical um, because- We got to keep the heresy out of this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) It affects me as a classical homeschooler because, you know, Western heritage has given us such riches, but we can't neglect the East. You know, we can't neglect the rest of the world. So I'm a classical homeschooler who says, well, we can learn so much from the East as well. And then I get into church history and I say, okay, well, this is so much more than even post-Reformation Western Europe, right? Christianity's roots are Middle Eastern. So we have Western Europe, and then you have the Middle East and North Africa, India and China, um, Russia. And it, it affects theology because I see certain practices in the church and I ask, is this an American idea or is this in the gospel? Is this cultural way to worship or is this a doctrinally accurate way to worship? Is this idea wrong or is it just unfamiliar, right? So if you go attend a Sunday morning service in Sudan or in Moscow or in Mumbai, you're going to have completely different experiences. 
and which of those experiences are doctrinally incorrect and which of them are just culturally unfamiliar. So that question, I think, comes up a lot for me in a lot of my experiences throughout life um, because it's just, it's a, a differing ideas about home and different ideas about what is normal are not always in conflict with the truth. So that's something that comes up a lot in our homeschool and in our discussions. And it really affects, the third culture perspective affects literature because we're constantly, you know, going to be adding to the typical homeschool book lists and adding modern literature and adding literature with diverse characters. Um, and it affects music because we're going to be listening to the way, you know, Mahalia Jackson, how did she sing this hymn? And we're going to be listening to world music and we're going to be asking questions like, what does worship look like in the worldwide church? Um, and then in a very, in a way that's directly relevant to the United States, it affects the way I review religious liberty and freedoms, like the freedom of assembly and the freedom of speech. Because, you know, we talked about my um, upbringing in Eastern Europe and behind the Iron Curtain when I was young. And I lived in a country which didn't have religious liberty and freedom of speech and freedom of assembly. So I grew up knowing that people got hauled away for not having the right papers. You know, I was aware of Checkpoint Charlie. I, I knew that the government could take micro microphones to the walls of your hotel room. Um, I knew that someone with the wrong things in their luggage could be imprisoned without question. And all growing up, knowing all of these things really gives you a sense of the impermanence of life on earth and the fact that we have to live all of life in view of eternity. And I also think it's really valuable to feel like an outsider. I think it's valuable to be uncomfortable, um, not just for the sake of being uncomfortable. Um, you know, my daughter has been learning Chinese for years now, just to throw another plot twist in all of this. <laughs> She's been learning Chinese. None of us are ethnically or culturally Chinese. You know, all of these things that I've talked about and the different places I've lived and the cultures I've interacted with, none of them were Chinese, right? My daughter speaks Chinese. And occasionally a blog reader will email me and they'll say that they're considering some sort of a cultural exchange class or a foreign language class. At their biggest concern is that their child might feel like an outsider, mm. right? And I say, good. I think we should all experience that. Like if you haven't yet, you should. Um, your life will be enriched in so many ways if you can push outside of that. And that's life-changing. And on a very fundamental spiritual level, if you're living as a Christian, you've never felt like an outsider. That's really hard for me to understand. Right. There's right? probably a deeper issue there. Yeah. Cause as you were, as you were talking, I was thinking what a gift you have a very unique way where you have tasted in a, in a different way or in a deeper way, potentially what really ought to be the universal Christian experience because we are outsiders. We are not our home. Our citizenship is in another city. Um, and so to be able to take a step back from our culturally centric ways of thinking and our traditions, you know, none of which is not necessarily traditions are not necessarily bad things um, inherently, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. to be able to take that kind of step back from them, to be able to see them with the eyes of saying, this is a tradition. This is the way we do things in our family or our culture. Um, and that's good. Being connected right. to that yes. is a good thing, but that's not the same thing as saying this is ultimate truth. 
Um, and so to be able to distinguish between those things is really important. Yes, and exactly. And like you said, traditions in themselves are not bad things. Like you have a lot of progressive ideas where you're supposed to reject, you know, your entire heritage and everything you came from. And um, as they said in the Cultural Revolution under Mao, reject the four olds, the old ways of thinking and dressing and speaking. And this is not that at all. It's just looking at, you know, our God is a global God. And we seek a lasting city, one that is to come, right? So right. none of these things that tie us to earth none of these things are what's going to last in the end and yet when we look at revelation we see that in heaven praising god are people from every tribe and nation and people in tongue so there's something really at its core about diversity cultural diversity that is near to the heart of god and we're all image bearers and so to be able to um, homeschool our kids and introduce our kids to all of these different cultures and people groups that God has created and ask, how do these people worship God? And how is it different than the way that we worship God? I think that there's something we can learn there about Christ since we are all his image bearers. Yes. Oh, I love, and I just think anyone who's listening is like, well, no wonder Amy has wanted Gina on her podcast for so long. <laughs> You're <laughs> too kind. This is, it, I love your perspective and I love your passion for sharing this. Um, you know, in your work online. And I think it's such an important, important part of the way we educate our kids for sure. And I think, you know, as, as a fellow classical homeschooler, it's one of the reasons why it's so important to me that we not um, take some of the ideas that are spoken about, about classical education and sort of like treat them as if they're just these ideas that sort of exist in and of themselves. But when you see truth and goodness and beauty, sort of the buzzwords in the classical world, mm -hmm. when you see those as really being defined by the character of God himself, when you see that we're really talking about a creator and the people made in his image, when we see a world and a history that is him outworking his providence over time, then you're able to see past just your own, um, your own perspective. Like you, you want to see how has God been working in this other place in different ways than he's worked in my life or in my family or in my culture. So. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it frees us up from a lot of, I mean, just from a practical curricular level, like, are we, we're supposed to, this term, we're supposed to learn about this artist you know what, if you find an artist, I think you should go out and find artists from other continents and other cultures and use those artists in your picture study as well. It doesn't mean that you have done something wrong if you haven't gone through all the ones that some classical educator said that you should go through. Because like you said, if we're looking for truth and goodness and beauty, it doesn't come from a curriculum list, right? right. These things are at the heart of God. And so we're not limited in where we find these things really. I mean, the whole world is under the reign of Christ. And so we're looking at the world in this way, I think is a lot, there's a lot of freedom in it. Oh yeah. And that's why I, I, I like to do my own thing. I don't, I don't <laughs> want anybody to boss me around with my curriculum. <laughs> I guess that is a second generation thing. I'm like, no, this is, I want, I want my freedom. I'm going to be a rebel. Oh, well, but... and also, also we've, a lot of those things we've already done and just on a very human level, I get bored. I don't want to do it again. Okay, that's like not a very philosophical answer, but I read this book when I was a kid. Let's read a different one. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
Yep. And it's even worse now that I have five kids because I'm like, oh my goodness, I've already done this like four times. Sorry, we're doing something totally different now. Except oh, I can understand that. Yeah. 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 I totally understand that too. Cause I mean, I have a, a 10 year old and a one year old that I'm like, Lachlan, you're getting something different because I can. <laughs> Do you remember thinking history was boring as you fell asleep over dry textbooks and meaningless bits of information? Have you been hearing that your children are supposed to memorize large chunks of history dates, fill out extensive timelines, or complete stacks of worksheets to prove they've really learned their history facts? Well, I'm here to tell you that it does not have to be that way in your homeschool. Homeschool history can be fun. It's not just dates and dead people. You can craft your own customized textbook-free history plan to use with many ages in a simple, fun, joyful way in your homeschool. And I have a textbook-free history masterclass to show you how. It's a 45-minute video masterclass and a 12-page e-booklet, plus I have lots of links to other resources that you may find helpful. And I share a lot of my own personal stories as a second-generation homeschool mom of five. So head over to humilityanddoxology.com shop and check out the textbook free history masterclass. And as a podcast listener, use code podcast for $5 off. Okay, so this sort of being able to customize and maybe my rebel streak, those are some homeschool stereotypes that maybe have their basis in a little bit of, of reality. But do you think there are any assumptions that people make about homeschooling that maybe aren't as accurate and maybe even some faulty assumptions we homeschoolers have about ourselves? Yes, yes. You know, I, I do, I write about pushing back against the homeschool stereotypes. And um, what I really mean by that is pushing back against homeschool legalism, mm. right? And general homeschool weirdness carried out in the name of religion. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it be, we're being in bondage to the law and not allowing Jesus to set us free. If we're telling people there's only one way to homeschool, and if you don't do it this way, your children aren't going to walk with Christ, right? right? So I'm a second generation homeschooler. I married a second generation homeschooler. My husband and I, all of our siblings <laughs> were homeschooled um, all the way through. And between us, we have a whole lot of adult friends who were a part of this guinea pig generation raised in these really legalistic circles um, where a lot of these homeschool stereotypes come from and legalism will be around as long as there are people right, right. so I, I'm talking about my experience as a homeschool kid but the reason it's still relevant to talk about is because I get into conversations every week with people and these same legalistic ideas are still coming up and people are still thinking they're the best thing since sliced bread mm -hmm. um still thinking that morality and character education, um, if you put them on a higher pedestal than Jesus Christ crucified, you're going to end up in bondage, you know? Um, so mimicking virtues doesn't save. Um, legalism does not draw people to Jesus. So my peers growing up, they were told over and over that reading a wholesome character training book was safer than reading a biography that had some sketchy parts. You know, and a whole lot of those friends are not walking with Jesus today. Right. Um, Elsie Dinsmore will not save your children. <laughs> Elsie Dinsmore will not 
save your child. And I go even further and I say that a steady diet of that actually has the potential to harm your child's face. Yeah. To harm your child's faith. Because when you're reading just these books about perfect Paula and sinless Susan and they, the kids grow, growing up reading only these kinds of books, they don't see that God has anything to do with the nitty gritty everyday struggles that we all face. You know, and they don't grow up learning that God reigns over the gray areas as well as the black and white. Um, the first time kids who only read Elsie Dinsmore encounter some sort of struggle or doubt in their faith, sadly, the conclusion a lot of times is, well, I must not be good enough to be a Christian or I must not be saved because none of the people I read about in my homeschool books ever faced any struggles. They always made the right choices. They never made any mistakes, you know? So to be really direct, an assumption people make about homeschoolers that is often accurate is that Christian homeschoolers can sometimes hyper-spiritualize education. Um, they can make everything so out of touch that it really drives their children away. And I've seen this over and over again. You know, we read the Ten Commandments and we see, don't take the name of the Lord in vain, right? And I think a lot of times we think, oh, don't swear. Okay, I've got that covered, you know, but there's a lot of other ways to take the name of the Lord in vain. Yeah. <laughs> like, for instance, educating your kids and not actually educating them and saying it's okay to not do any hard work and just slide through life. And um, because you're Christians, you know, that's taking the name of the Lord in vain, like not being good stewards of the children God has placed in our care and saying it's okay because you worship God, that's taking the name of the Lord in vain. And a lot of people don't like when I say these kinds of things. And so Amy, thank you for having me on your show and being willing to have these conversations. Yes. Um, I sometimes feel the need to just stop and say, I 100% support homeschooling and I 100% love Jesus. Um, if you're listening and you have any questions about what I'm saying, just contact me and I'm happy to clarify. Um, I believe in Jesus and I believe in homeschooling, but I'm not going to sit here and act like using one of those things to mess up the other is okay. Does that make right. sense? Oh, that does right? make sense. Yes. So you have to understand, like, sometimes I can come across as really aggressive when I talk about these things, but maybe we should go back to where I lived in Northern California, right? So I mentioned that it was a really bizarre world that I landed in. And, you know, some really good people came out of my time there, like my husband. So we're, we can be weird together now uh -huh. and raise our kids, right? <laughs> and I, I, I met some lifelong friends in those circles. So not everything that came out of that was like bizarre and strange, but a lot of it was. And you read stories uh, in the news about homeschooling scandals and you're like, is that real? Like, how could that possibly happen? Well, those scandals aren't always about strangers. Like you read about a homeschool scandal and there's a very high probability that my husband and I know the people named in the scandal. So I've seen the closed doors behind the big names of the homeschool world and it's not always the same as what's presented at homeschool conventions. So for me, pushing back against homeschool stereotypes doesn't mean having a nice answer to what about socialization, right? Or pointing out that homeschool graduates actually do profoundly well in the real world and they're sought after by colleges and they're successful disciplined self-starters. All those things are true and I do say them, um, but pushing back against homeschool stereotypes can also mean addressing head on 
the idea that yes, sometimes Christians do homeschool because their goal is to shelter to the extreme. And sometimes Christians do homeschool because their view of God is legalistic. And sometimes Christians do homeschool because they think they can control their kids through homeschooling. And with these reasons, they end up homeschooling very poorly, right? right? Right. So these things need to be said. And this is not, this is not bitterness speaking. Um, my own parents homeschooled my brothers and I exceptionally well. Um, they cared about our souls and our brains. <laughs> you can care about both. Yes, hundred uh, percent. We were taught to write papers and to take tests. Um, we were taught to tinker and to work with our hands. We were given time to pursue our own individual interests. You know, we were required to do our structured academics, but we were given time for free play. So our homeschool days had two tiers. First, get your schoolwork done. And second, enjoy your free time to pursue writing or soldering or building or reading or whatever individual gifts were. So I was raised in this home with incredible balance, academic things and spiritual things. And we learned to fill in the bubble on a Scantron sheet and read our Bibles, right? right? So the two are not mutually exclusive. You can and you should feed your children's souls as well as their intellect. You can meet their spiritual needs as well as their academic needs. And I don't know why in homeschool subculture, these things are so often viewed as though they're at odds. Because God created the whole person. He created us with brains and emotions and hearts and souls. And, you know, if we're talking about homeschool assumptions, another false assumption is that you can either meet your child's spiritual needs or you can meet their academic needs, but you can't do both. Um, and that's a false dichotomy. That's a false dichotomy. Academics and spiritual needs are not at war. Now, lies and the truth can be at war, right? Pride and humility can be at war. But academic education in the home is not inherently at its face at war with our spiritual lives, right? It's all under the dominion of Christ. Um, this Maybe it seems like an odd bone to pick, but this is, it all goes along with my experience being a homeschooled kid. And so the truth is, is that my parents, as well as my brothers and I as homeschooled kids, received a lot of unhealthy criticism and negative comments for our achievements in the academic realm, or even just for pursuing academic goals in a solid orderly manner, mm -hmm. right? So among the families in which my homeschool peers were raised, there was a soul-destroying legalism that created a false dichotomy between the sacred and the secular. And a lot of times the secular was feebly defined as anything that was, quote, too academic, unquote. You know, and this, this I, I, I hear this, I hear this still in homeschool circles. Um, and it never settled well with my spirit. You know, God invented chemistry. You know, he's the author of it all. But in a lot of the legalistic homeschool circles that I had brushes with during my time as a homeschooled kid, someone who was gifted with an utter fascination, let's say with atoms and formulas and bonds and this makeup of the universe, they were seen as too secular. Mm. And someone like that would be picked on and pressured and told they needed to change or care more about the spiritual realm, right? I, this is just so fundamentally wrong. Um, Wendell Berry, we love Wendell Berry, right? He wrote, there are no unsacred places. There are only sacred places and desecrated places. 
And I think about that a lot in light of creation and the fall. Um, and it ties all into homeschooling. Um, A.W. Tozer and his book, The Pursuit of God, he quotes 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And he says, one of the greatest hindrances to internal peace, which the Christian encounters, is the common habit of dividing our lives into two areas, the sacred and the secular. And I received a phenomenal education thanks to my parents. Amy, and I know you um, talk about your own homeschool experience, and you were homeschool homeschooled classically before your parents knew it was a thing, right? Yeah, before it was um, cool. Yeah, exactly. And so my parents have never been ones to float along with the status quo. So even though everyone around them was like, you don't need to do school, you can just love God. Um, they understood that you can love God by working with your hands or by reading books. Um, but many of my peers, Amy, it's very sad. Many of my peers did not receive an education. Mm. Um, they were victims of radical unschooling. That wasn't even unschooling. It was educational neglect. And it was fueled on the false doctrine of the secular sacred divide. So the flushing out of this theology left my peers at age 18 functionally illiterate and angry at their parents for squandering their years. And, and this is why it matters. This is why it matters because the parents used God as an excuse for not buckling down and doing the hard work of schooling. And my peers used this as a reason to turn their backs on God. So I have friends who realize later in life that they were, for example, incredibly gifted in mathematics or in engineering, but they had been, they had never received a proper education and it took them years into adulthood to catch up. I'm not talking about alternative hands-on education. I'm talking about hyper-spiritualizing life to the point where you say it's more important to keep our kids at home than to school them, right? And it's easy to understand why this would bring about a deep, deep hurt in children's hearts. All right, so I've seen friends grow up where their parents had always said that God mattered more than academics and that the ethereal spiritual realm was more holy than the physical earth we walk around on and physical bodies. But these friends ended up functionally illiterate and angry at their parents. And most tragically of all, they were angry and bitter against God because God had always been presented to them as against the sort of things they were interested in or naturally gifted in. They weren't allowed to pursue the gifts and purposes for which God had created them. And this was done in the name of God. Um, so this, it, it's a heavy word, right? And I don't, I don't say any of these things lightly. I see these things as a warning to myself and to others listening. Don't do this to your children, right? Don't tell your children that the gifts God has woven into their very being those interests and talents and skills that God has knit into them. Don't tell them that their drive to write or to fix cars or whatever. Understand nuclear energy. Don't tell them that those actions are unworthy. God created our intellects and our soul. He created our hearts and our minds. And he created us with this ability to think and to feel and to work and to rest. And he gave us all different callings. You know, Amy, you have five children. They're all different. And we see this all throughout the Old and New Testaments. Um, Genesis 49 and Deuteronomy 35, they're prime examples, right? Like some of, some of the tribes of Israel were called to give beautiful words. Some were called to cook rich delicacies, right? Mm -hmm. um, when God is creating the temple, there were people 
talented for different artistic works. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that one of them was more valuable in the eyes of God than the other. And um, A.W. Tozer, I quoted him again. Um, I quoted him earlier, and I want to read from him again. He says, Paul's sewing of tents was not equal to his writings of an epistle to the Romans, but both were accepted of God and both were true acts of worship. Certainly, it is more important to lead a soul to Christ than to plant a garden, but the planting of a garden can be as holy an act as the winning of a soul. It is not what a man does that determines whether his work is sacred or secular. It is why he does it. The motive is everything. Let a man sanctify the Lord God in his heart, and he can thereof after do no common act. And this absolutely 1000% unequivocally includes homeschooling, right? God is God over our morning Bible devotion time and the time we spend working on math. He's God over the academic realm and the spiritual realm. And to him, they're the same because he created the whole person and he created spirit and flesh, right? The incarnation shows us that so powerfully. So homeschooling and God's dominion includes every bit of the quotidian details of life. There's holy ground everywhere. And we do no one a service if we're breaking up life into worthy and unworthy and sacred and secular and spiritual and academic and Bible and math. Right. I, I believe that it's a, it's possible to live a holistic life where everything we touch. Everything we touch is holy if it's all um, under the dominion of Christ. Right. This isn't a license to sin. This is the idea that our work is worshiped if we offer it up to the Lord. Having that right theology, then at the core of what we're doing, understanding God a right um, seeking for all that we do and think to be geared towards worship trickles down then when he is our chief end and our chief delight, when we are filled with praise and humility, like humility and doxology, you know, it's, yes, yes. <laughs> it's why I, I picked those words because when those things rule our, our, our entire life, then that is going to have a profound impact on the way we approach education. And, and I just think getting at that out of order, kind of starting with starting with our ideas about education first um, is always going to disorder the way we approach things. But starting with who God is and what he has done, who mm -hmm. he's made us to be, if we start with that first and let then that flow down into the way we educate or parent or work or play or any of these things, um, that is going to keep our eyes fixed on Christ. Yes, I completely agree. And I also think a big part of this is acknowledging the uniqueness of our individual children. Um, and when we fail to do that, we can really miss the mark. And we can fall into legalism again. As a just a practical example, like gazing at Monet's lilies will do nothing for my daughter, right? She's she can look at that and she's not going to get some sense of awe of the creation of God and creativity and any epiphany from that. But if she spends some time with a math equation, she can come out in awe at the orderliness of the universe and that God created all these things and that math is under the dominion of Christ, and she can glorify and worship through the being in awe of a, a mathematical problem, that would do nothing for me, but that 
speaks to her soul. And so letting God be as big as God is and not making him into a man-sized idea, I think is really important as well. Um, and so if, if I were to say to my daughter that, you know, literature and art is so much more holy and under the dominion of Christ than mathematics and science, I would be teaching her something false about God and hurting her soul in the process, right? So right. I don't understand how she can see Christ in that, right? But God speaks to her through the orderliness of his universe. Um, so for her, it is better time spent less time on the art and more time on the math, right? Um, and we start our day with math because that, that well, after, after devotions, the first subject that we do is math. And that is what works for her soul. And I think a lot of parents really miss the individualness of each child and forget that God puts callings on individual children in the same way he does on adults. Yeah. He's made them all different. And now I'm like wanting to go on a rabbit trail. I'm going to rein myself back in, but that's like a whole nother thing where I just, uh, I, I love math. I mean, I love literature. I don't see them as, you know, being opposed to one another, but it, one of the things that breaks my heart a lot of times in the homeschool world is this sort of idea of like, let's make sure we read our kids all these great stories and do all this wonderful, you know, poetry and the arts. I mean, granted, which are all things I emphasize and I love. And then they're like, yes. oh, we, we don't have to really worry about the math and the science. Um, or like, that's not, that's not really like beautiful. That's just sort of like facts or whatever. It's like, no, yes. this, is, <laughs> this is crazy. God made this, God invented this. This is a language, another language that he created. So anyway. Yes. <laughs> yes. And I was at, I was at a homeschool conference one time um, years ago and the keynote, you know, says that you don't have to finish your math book. And everybody was like, cheering and stuff and my daughter looked at me like heartbroken oh and I was like honey we're we're gonna keep doing the math book you know and she was like maybe kindergarten or something at the time this was about five years ago but I was like wow this is such a powerful reminder to me that everyone is not created the same and if I were to follow the homeschool zeitgeist you know and say you don't have to do your math let's spend more time on this like what a disservice to her that would be and a very, uh, uh, it would be disrespectful to God who created her that way, right? right? And who am I to say that I need to change the child that she is? So, you know, math and science weren't my favorite subjects growing up, but I've become really passionate about talking about them in the homeschool community because, like you said, I feel like they get shortchanged so often. This podcast is brought to you by Kristen Moon Science. Are you homeschooling a high schooler? Are you searching for high school chemistry labs that go above and beyond simple kitchen science? Then check out the newly released Chemistry Lab video course by Kristen Moon Science. This course contains more than 30 hands-on experiments, activities, and investigations covering a full year of chemistry labs. Because the lessons can be done in any order, the course can be used with any curriculum your student is already using to provide a robust chemistry experience. In fact, that's what I'm going to be doing this year with my ninth grader. We're going to find the video labs that correspond with the chapters in her textbook, and I know that this will be a great experience because Kristen is an enthusiastic and thorough science teacher. Each lesson includes a video review of chemistry concepts, a video demonstration of each experiment, sample calculations, printable lab recording sheets, and an answer key. 
This course was created by my friend, Dr. Kristen Moon, a previous podcast guest, so definitely go back and check out my chats with Kristen. She was a lab scientist and a homeschool mom with over 20 years of teaching experience. The lessons are designed to provide students with opportunities to apply the skills they are learning in chemistry while gaining valuable scientific reasoning skills. Students can perform the labs alongside the videos or simply watch as Dr. Moon demonstrates the lab and use her measurements to complete the calculations and questions on the recording sheet. This course is perfect for high schoolers learning from home but also works well in a classroom or co-op setting. This course is suited for both advanced and struggling learners and sets students up for success in future lab courses as well as college chemistry. For more information and to take advantage of early bird pricing, visit kristenmoonscience.com chemistry video labs and check out the show notes for a special discount code for Humility and Doxology listeners. And when we have these unique children that God has given us, which kind of perfectly transitions and segues to my next question, because you and I both share this, um, not only our second generation experience, but this opportunity to have really unique, um, some twice exceptional asynchronous kids. And I, back at the beginning, when you were telling you know the story about your daughter when she was very young, it made me think about, I think my son was probably like four years old and we were coming back late at night from a friend's house. It was like a bunch of families together and he had just been really overstimulated. And so we're in the car driving home and he just starts like reciting these crazy math facts. Like he would, <laughs> he would just be like, five times two is 10 or whatever, you know? <laughs> and he's like back there self-soothing with, you know, addition and multiplication. Like, you know, ordinary kids don't self-soothe with math facts, but some kids do. <laughs> it's true. In my family, we call it math therapy. Oh, I like, love that. You know, you need, you've had this is there's too many people around. It's Christmas. You know what you need? You can go in the back bedroom. No one is back there. Oh, we had one Christmas a few years ago, it was loud and we were at relatives house and everyone's like kids are crying and there's music playing and there's Christmas lights flashing and it's late at night and um, my sister in law, who's just she completely gets this she just knelt down in front of Aveline and she's like, Aveline, would you like to sit in the back room with uncle's chemistry book. Aww. And she was like, Yes, and she my sister in law took her back there and pulled an old college textbook off the shelf and Aveline just sat there and she was just like came out like an hour later completely calm and you know that is seeing that is seeing the uniqueness that God has placed in someone and ministering to them in the way that God created them what a beautiful expression of love that's amazing isn't it isn't it so that to me when when somebody is saying you know Aveline you don't have to finish your math book and then somebody else is kneeling down and saying would you like to calm down with a chemistry book right Mm. that is just so the ability to see beyond ourselves and to see what someone else needs, that is an example right there that encapsulates homeschooling to me, right? Yeah. Just the ability to say, what does the child need? And like your son <laughs> reciting math facts to calm down, that is absolutely something that would happen in our home. And it's also something that if I feel like if you told this story at, at a keynote, people would probably walk out. <laughs> They just wouldn't understand. I, I think that it's it's one of those things, like if it's been your experience and someone tells a story like that, you're like, oh girl, yeah, I've got five more stories just like that. And you start comparing notes. 
But for a lot of families, it's really hard to understand. You know, you come into a homeschool group, you know, or a homeschool party or the church function, and your kid just doesn't seem to act the way other people expect them to act, especially when they're Um, ability to communicate or understand is so obviously advanced. And yet a lot of times they may be acting several, several years younger than their peers. And that can be a really hard place to be. So if we're talking to someone who's like, I don't, I just don't understand what you guys are talking about. Like, what do you think, or what do you wish people understood about homeschooling these, these unique asynchronously developing children. And then what encouragement I guess would you have for a mama who's listening is like, oh, I'm not alone. <laughs> my kid isn't crazy. Because <laughs> I didn't know, like for a long time, I thought my kid was crazy. I, I Exactly, exactly. And then you read like a parenting book and you're like, this doesn't, this just say, just firmly say no and they'll do it. That mm-hmm. what? <laughs> so I, maybe we should back up a little bit and define um, these terms like twice exceptional kids or asynchronous development. Um, in case you're listening and you're like, what? You just lost me with all of these terms. So we know children in general, they don't progress at the same rate across all areas of development, right? Like you have emotional development, physical, academic development. Um, and even in academically across subjects, kids don't progress linearly the way that the curriculum developers say that they should. And we kind of understand that as homeschool parents. Um, When the gap between, let's say, your emotional development and your academic development is really, really wide, when there's a really a disparity between the development in one area and the development in another area, we call that asynchronous development. And in gifted kids, that gap can be absolutely massive. So like you said, um, the ability to communicate might not be there. but an understanding of what's going on around them um, will be there. And an asynchronous child is many ages at once, right? So you can use Aveline as an example. She's will be in fifth grade. It's her eighth year learning Chinese. Um, she wakes up every morning and works on math competition problems before breakfast. And she can pretty much pick any classic off the shelf she wants to and read it and comprehend it. But she also reads elephant and piggy books at bedtime and colors with crayons and watches preschool shows. Um, And this is one of the reasons I really love homeschooling, right? Because this is not a problem. (laughs) These aren't problems at all in homeschooling. And she never has to know that they're problems because nobody's telling her that these things are designed for someone else, right? So on one hand, you have asynchronous development. And then, you know, you have giftedness, which is just a completely different neurological wiring. Um, Asynchronous development. And then we have twice exceptional or 2E. You may have heard listeners the term 2E and wondered what in the world is this acronym. A twice exceptional child might have dyslexia or sensory processing disorder or something like that alongside giftedness. So one of the things that for me was most helpful in understanding my daughter is to think of students like this as high needs or extra needs learners. Um, Giftedness is not just high academic achievement. Oh, it can be right? Um, It's a completely different wiring. So something that you may be listening and thinking, well, my child can't be gifted because they have all these struggles. There are a lot of struggles Mm -hmm. that go along with being neurodiverse, whether that's with focus or writing or executive functioning skills, right? (laughs) Which go along with this unique wiring. And 
as homeschool parents, we're in the perfect place to help these neurodiverse kids thrive. Um, so a lot of a lot of accommodations can be made. We can provide high texture environments for sensory seekers. We can do audiobooks. It's not a bad word, homeschoolers. Audiobooks does not mean you're neglecting your child if you put on an audiobook. Yeah, right? we just we just call it reading with your ears as opposed to reading with exactly. your eyeballs. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And uh, we, you and I have talked about this too. Like you're going to sit in your closet and listen to an audiobook. That's amazing. Um, homeschool moms, you're with your kids 25 hours a day, eight days a week. You do not have to read every book aloud. You can use an audiobook. Um, and for some kids, Amy, as you know, reading with your ears is going to work so much better than reading with your eyes. Um, so we can do all of these things. They have very little to do with what we call academics and absolutely everything to do with helping a kid thrive. Um, something that we do is we don't have to sit still when we do schoolwork right? You can pace or rock or wiggle or stand. Um, or sit in a tree. Some of my kids sit, <laughs> sit in, in a tree. Yes. <laughs> Hang upside down, right? There's like all of these things that you can do. Um, not everything has to be written. Work can be done aloud. Um, I remember my daughter was maybe five or six and we introduced her to chewing gum. And she was like, mom, gum is the best thing ever. It's so much better than chewing on the carpet or my shirt. <laughs> I was like, that is the best testimony for gum I've ever heard. <laughs> so after that point, I was like, oh, she's been chewing holes in her shirts because she wants to chew on something. So I got her one of those necklaces that's like a chew on it. Uh-huh. We did so much better at like home school outings after wearing our chewy necklace and chewing gum. So, you know, if your child is chewing on the carpet, try gum. (laughs) Words of wisdom from Gina. (laughs) So a lot of these accommodations, right? Like you probably hear me talking and be like, oh, she only cares about academics. Well, really in my house, we've got wiggle seats. My daughter's wearing, my daughter's like really loud and she's really sensitive to other people's loudness, which doesn't. I don't even know how that works, but she has noise canceling headphones and she's like bouncing around on a yoga ball, which I didn't even know that you could use them as locomotive devices, but she can, right? And she's like uh-huh. doing her schoolwork on a clipboard while she's bouncing around with headphones on. Um, that Homeschooling a neurodiverse kid might look like that. Um, all of these things would be problems in a traditional classroom. They're not problems at all at home. Um, so if, you, if you're finding yourself And I'm not saying don't discipline your kids or teach them to sit still in appropriate situations. I'm just saying, consider when is it, when is it actually necessary to sit still? You know, you can sit in a tree and still do your schoolwork. Like let's, let's choose our battles um, over heart issues and not like you have to have your two feet flat on the floor when you do your science. I don't think that's really a heart formation issue. right? Right. So I think one thing I wish people knew about neurodiverse kids, though, is that they struggle. Um, Life is not automatically easier for them. Um, In a lot of ways, it's harder because they see everything differently and they're misunderstood so often. So I think I wish more people um, understood that neurodiverse kids just aren't sailing through life on academic laurels. Um, They struggle, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's a really important reminder, I think, for for everyone who maybe has a kid in their life that they hopefully can love in better ways and their parents. You can love their parents and pray for them. 
in better ways. If -hmm. anyone um, wants to know more about this topic in particular, uh, last season, I interviewed Colleen Kessler and we we did sort of a deep dive into this topic. So if if you are listening and your interest is is sparked, um, definitely go back and check out that episode with Colleen. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, just as far as encouragement for parents as they're homeschooling their own quirky kids, um, I've already said some controversial things, so I might as well just go full on spicy, right? Let's do it. Um, Let's do it. As Christian parents, we really need to fear God maybe a little more than we do (laughs) before we start butting into our children's lives. Um, Charlotte Mason says children are born persons. And homeschoolers quote that all the time and then turn around and try to make their children into carbon copies of themselves with identical taste. Um, You really need to let your kids be the individuals God created them to be. You know, I'm not talking about never having rules or never having discipline or, you know, letting your kids run all over you in chaos and disorder. I'm just talking about acknowledging the uniquely born persons our children actually are. And one example that I can give, um, I think it's a little bit sobering or scary, the number of parents who come to me and say, I love that your daughter learns Chinese and my child has been begging to learn, let's say, Japanese. But I said no, because I think Spanish is so much more practical. Um, So I'm making my child learn Spanish instead. And I want to say, are you God? Mm. Like, are you God? Do you know for certain what God has called your child to do? Can you see the future? You know, A very hard word um, for type A parents and every parents to remember, we're not raising children to follow us. We're raising children to follow God. We don't want our children to grow up to be like us. We want our children to grow up to be like Christ, right? So God gives our children's gifts. He gives them leanings. He gives them desires and skills and interests. And he's even given them their own aesthetic taste. It may not mirror yours that's not a sin, right? Right. So our presumptuous audacity and pride, it really ought to sober us a little bit. And if God has called your child to speak Japanese, maybe God is calling your child to reach Japanese speaking people for Christ or to work in a corporation where Japanese is part of the daily work life. So as parents, we need to let our children follow God in this tangible way. Even if you live in rural Oklahoma and this doesn't make any practical sense to your mind at all, We need to fear God more and believe that God can lead um, our children. So my dad likes to tell a story. Um, He grew up in rural Michigan. um, And then after he got saved, he was a missionary in Mexico, which is where my brother and I were born. And he was in 10th grade in rural Michigan, and he got his schedule for the fall, and he saw that he had a Spanish class. And he marched to the high school counselor, and he told her in no uncertain terms, get me out of this class. I'm never going to use Spanish. Get me out of this class. And they took him out of the class. Just a few years later, my dad was living on a coffee plantation in Guatemala, learning Spanish (laughs) because he wanted to be a missionary in Mexico and he needed to learn Spanish before he could. So he ended up going to um, immersion school in Guatemala. Well, I mean, he likes to tell that story because God knew he was going to need Spanish, right? Right. So My parents speak Spanish. I took Spanish and Latin in high school on Spanish in college. It would make sense that my children should learn Spanish and Latin, right? My daughter's learning Chinese and Greek. (laughs) 
<laughs> so I'm not saying let your child run all over you, um, but our job is to let God lead our children as well, because we have them for a limited amount of time and they're accountable to God for their entire lives, right? So we are not the Holy Spirit. (laughs) We are not the Holy Spirit, exactly. And so if the Holy Spirit is giving our children nudges and we tell them to ignore the Holy Spirit, like that scares me. That scares me. Um, So there's a fine line between maintaining your order and discipline in your home sometimes and saying, yes, these are the things we're learning this year and you have to learn them, you know, and I, I have to do that every year when I plan my curriculum, but also if God has given your child a passion or an interest or something that doesn't make sense, it doesn't mean that it's wrong, right? Is it, is it more difficult for me to have Chinese and Greek than Spanish and Latin? Yes, mm-hmm. it is, but that's okay. That's okay. And I think a lot of the parable in Matthew 25, um, the man was preparing to leave his estate and go on a journey. And so he called his servants to him and he says, I'm going to give you each a different amount of gold, right? And if you look in the older translations, it literally calls these a bag of talents. So some servants did wise things with these talents. And as the talents increase, they have more to report back to the master. You know, Lord, I redeemed the time. I didn't squander. And the master says, well done, you've been faithful. But in the parable, what always stands out to me is that one servant who was bound by fear and he was Mm -hmm. afraid and he buried that talent in the ground to keep it safe. And when the master returned, the master wasn't pleased at him for being safe and conservative. He was angry that the servant let fear get in the way of obedience. So I keep that in my mind and it, it, it sobers me. Um, our kids are the talents and our kids have talents practical way or to take big risks and let the Holy Spirit be the Holy Spirit. So, I mean, I'm reminding myself as much as I'm saying this to anyone else, we have to listen to the Holy Spirit and be led by God as we raise our children. And we have to ask God that our children's ears would always be open to the Holy Spirit's nudges as well. Such an important and helpful encouragement. Gina, this has been so much fun. I'm really excited that I got to talk to you in person and not just in our DMs. Yes, this has been wonderful. (laughs) Thank you for taking the time to chat with me. Here at the end, I just want to ask you the final two questions I'm asking everyone this season. And um, really, it's just because I like to add more books to my never-ending pile of of books that I want to read. But the first question (laughs) is, what are you reading lately? I read so many books at a time, Amy. It's kind of a problem. Um, I don't I rotate, think that's a problem. I, ro- I rotate through the stack whenever whatever I'm in the mood for. So I'm always reading so many books at once. And I read a lot on Kindle these days because my toddler really likes to turn the pages for me and rip them out. We're working on that. So <laughs> right now I'm reading Religion of the Apostles by Stephen DeYoung. It's part theology and part first century history. It's absolutely hmm. fascinating. And I've also been working my way through Anne Applebaum's massive book, Iron Curtain, The Crushing of Eastern Europe. It is very, very large, and I will be reading it for a long time. Um, And I'm reading Fahrenheit 451, which is a departure from my usual history nonfiction, you know, but it's still very much 
on brand for yes. the type of apocalyptic history books that I like to read. Uh, and then randomly, I'm also reading um, Ken Ludwig's How to Teach Your Child Shakespeare. Oh, and I, ad one. I admit, it's my first time reading it. It's not a new book. I have a weird thing where I really don't like to read books that seem too popular. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> I refused to read that book for years. And then I got it from the library. And I was like, this book is amazing. I can't believe I have been a snob about it for so long. <laughs> so, um, and finally for poetry, I'm reading Lee Young Lee's The City in Which I Love You, which I learned about from a Taiwanese American friend. And she totally understands what it is to be a third culture kid. The City in Which I Love You by Lee Young Lee. Very beautiful. I'll have to see if they have that at the library. That sounds really fascinating. Um, Gina, what is your best tip for helping the homeschool day run smoothly? Ooh, I think my first tip is that I have no tips. <laughs> <laughs> it's very individual to each family and to each individual kid, right? So mm -hmm. what I say to people is your homeschool has to work for you, not for anyone else. So I always hear the tip, don't start your day with math. Um, and quite honestly, if I followed that tip, our homeschool days would be an utter fail. <laughs> right. Math. We talked about math therapy and how math is grounding and self self soothing. Um, so for my homeschool to run smoothly, that's what we need to do. It's not what you need to do. Um, most of you listening, you'd have an insurrection if you tried that math before <laughs> breakfast. So, you know, maybe that's my tip. Fear God. Listen to the Holy Spirit. Um, honor the children God gave you and meet their needs. And it's okay if your homeschool doesn't look like everyone else's. That's kind of the point. Um, it's okay if you stick out like a sore thumb because sometimes not fitting in is the best thing that you could ever do. And that's part of what makes homeschooling so fantastic and Absolutely. worth it, even Absolutely. when it's hard. Yes, yes. Gina, where can people find you all around the internet? The easiest way to find me is to type ginamuncie.com into your browser and that'll redirect to oaxacaborn.com. I named my blog about 20 years ago before I knew that you shouldn't name your blog ridiculous things. <laughs> so <laughs> if you just type ginamuncie.com, it'll redirect to my website. Um, you can also find me on Instagram at oaxacaborn, O-A-X-A-C-A-B-O-R-N. Um, yeah, I'm on Instagram often. You can probably reach me most easily there. And I look forward to following some listeners and probably chatting in DMs about some of the things that we've talked about today, Amy. Yes, definitely. I will have links to all of those things in the show notes for this episode at humilityanddoxology.com. And I really encourage people to reach out and follow up and chat with you more. Thank you, Gina, so much. I look forward to Thank chatting you with you so again. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening in on this week's Homeschool Conversation. For show notes and links to all the resources we discussed, head to humilityanddoxology.com slash homeschool dash conversations. And if these episodes are an encouragement to you, would you take a moment to leave a rating and review and to share with your friends? I am so thankful that you are here on this adventure with me. Let's repent of our constant striving, relish the joy of learning, and rest in the work of Christ on our behalf. 
Stand fast, my friends.